Hi everyone, I'm John Offord, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Mind, the podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Timo, the award-winning visual planning app designed to support routine and time management. The app empowers users to schedule visual routines that work. Users say that Timo can actually help reduce stress and support executive function. Head to your app store and type T-I-I-M-O into the search bar to learn more. Today we're going to talk about an autism theory called monotropism. I'm delighted to be joined by Dinah Murray, who is an independent researcher with a background in linguistics, anthropology and philosophy, and her son, Fergus Murray, a science teacher, writer and autist. Welcome to the show, guys. Glad to be here. Uh, Thank you very much. So I'm going to start with, I guess, a general question is, what is autism theory? Why do we need autism theory? We need autism theory because everyone understands things like autism through the lens of what they have heard about it and what they hear about it is shaped by the dominant theories so the fact that the dominant theories of autism tell people that for example we lack empathy um or we're just terrible at marshalling our thoughts which is essentially what executive dysfunction describes um or that we are really bad at seeing the big picture. All of these lead people actively wrong um, when it comes to understanding autism. So autism theory is important because it has the potential to help people understand autistic people. Um, But it also has the potential to actively lead to misunderstandings. Yeah, we we have autism practice, therefore we better have some autism theory. So... I know that, Fergus, you, you've written an article on, on some of the best ways to understand autism, and, and there are specific points on that. I wonder if you could just talk us through those. Right, so my six starting points for understanding autism, I'll go through all of them first. Number one, coping with multiple channels is hard. Number two, filtering is tricky and error-prone. Three, changing tracks is destabilising. Four, I often experience things intensely. Five, I keep looping looping back to my interests and concerns. Six, other things that drop out of my awareness tend to stay dropped. So the thing about multiple channels is I think, I mean, I I started with that because I think it's probably the first thing that you really need to understand to make sense of the way that autistic people process the world. Um, So we're talking here about sensory channels and other information streams. So for example, if I'm listening to you talk it's likely that i'm not going to be simultaneously taking in and processing your facial expressions and your body language um because those are they're separate streams right um and it's difficult to process multiple channels of information at a time for autistic people so this means that autistic people tend to miss lots of body language and uh, non-verbal communication more generally while we are simultaneously trying to engage in verbal communication uh, and that goes both ways so we tend to miss body language that other people are performing and we tend to not express ourselves in body language in the same way that most other people do um, it, it often takes a, a conscious effort to arrange our face in the ways that people expect faces to be arranged in a given circumstance for example um, so this this manifests in what Damien Milton calls the double empathy problem. Um, 
autistic people and non-autistic people very misunderstand each other. I think it was the two Ronnie sketch uh, that, that Damien Milton has referred to previously. Four candles. <laughs> so a lot of things follow from that. And it's not just about communication, um, but it does explain most of our communication difficulties, I think. Um, if you think about things like... Uh, background context, social rules and things, all of these are processes which need to be engaged simultaneously in order for people to interact in the way that so-called normal people are expected to interact. Um, so anytime that we miss any of those channels or any information from any of those channels, it tends to strike people as weird. At least it tends to strike non-autistic people as weird. Autistic people communicating with other autistic people are just used to each other not having multiple channels of processing going on all the time. So that sort of leads into point two, right, about filtering. Sometimes I can't tune things out, other times I filter them out completely. So uh, filtering is an active process. It, it takes mental energy to filter out stimuli. And that means that if you're tired, it gets harder to filter. If you're filtering a lot, you get more tired. And the, the flip side is that when my attention is fully engaged on one thing, I'm liable to filter out everything else completely because that's like a, a blunt force filter, effectively. So autistic people are very often bothered by things like background noise, um, flickering lights, all of these little stimuli, which most people don't seem to notice consciously, um, although there are ways that you can see that actually most people are bothered by flickering fluorescent lights. They just don't know what's bothering them. They might just get a headache after a couple of hours or that kind of thing. That leads on to the fact that when we're in a like a flow state, when we're really into something that we're super interested in, we don't have to pour energy into filtering constantly. Um, it just sort of automatically blocks everything out, at least, you know, any stimuli that are not too intrusive. And we can just get on with it and we just let, you know, that lets us let our filters down and relax. So entering into flow states, engaging with our, our special interests, so-called, our passions, is one of the most relaxing things that we can do. But when we are engaged in our special interests, when we're, you know, when our interest is fully engaged in anything, that leads me on to the third point, which is that changing tracks is destabilizing. Um, it's difficult to switch attention in general, it takes time, it takes effort, and most people are not used to that. Um, even though in some ways it's quite a familiar thing, if someone is deeply wrapped up in a, a book or a football game and someone demands that they switch their attention elsewhere, that's really jarring, right? Uh, everyone knows that, but um, that's essentially happening to autistic people all the time. Yeah. yeah. And... Yeah. Can I, can I break in here and say then there's a real need for a recovery time for autistic people because of the level of disruption. So they take, it's, it's, it's got a qualitatively different aspect to it, which is this very great importance to being given time to regroup because everything has become senseless for a while. Yeah, and also it it tends to mean that you need to discard all your old plans and form a new set of plans. And that, that takes time and effort. So relatedly, again, point four, I often experience things intensely. Um, 
I my sensory experience of the world just seems to be ramped up compared with most people. Um, I particularly notice lots of small details. Uh, when I am, you know, in a, a flow zone, when I'm really into something, um, that's a really kind of powerful experience. And again, I think it can be for everyone. But I think that this is a more central feature of autistic experience than it is for other people. Um, and of course, experiencing things intensely is not always pleasant. Um, this relates back to the, the filtering thing. You know, I'm liable to experience the sensation of a label that I haven't cut out of my clothes on the back of my neck intensely. I'm liable to experience the sound of traffic intensely. Um, so the label thing is literally like a hypersensitivity then to touch. Is that why you'd cut the labels out of your clothes, perhaps? Right. Yeah. Intense experiences of things, um, which can be great. And it, it's really worth recognising that that is an, an advantage of being autistic. Um, for me, it's not just touch. It's, it's really all of the senses, taste, smell, sight and hearing. Well, point five. I keep looping back to my interests and concerns. So this is referred to in the diagnostic criteria in terms of restricted interests. But I think that's a wildly misleading term because quite a lot of the autistic people I know have um, intense interests, but they cycle through them quite often. Um, and I'm quite like that. So something that I'm currently intensely interested in, I will keep coming back to. And there are some things which, you know, that goes on throughout my life. Um, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by linguistics uh, and physics, but I'm really, I'm very interested in lots and lots of things. And I'm, I'm definitely not unique in being an autistic person with actually a very wide range of interests. It's just that we're, we're not interested in, in all of the things that people expect us to be interested in. And we're more intensely interested in the things that we are really interested in. Um, so we keep coming back to them. Um, Unfortunately, there's a, a a negative side of that as well, which is concerns, um, anxieties. It's not just things that I'm positively interested in that I keep looping back to. It's things that I'm concerned about. So this is, I think, a big part of the reason why autistic people are very prone to anxiety. Um, it's only one of the reasons. Obviously, sensory factors are important and so on as well. But... Uh, because we have these sort of, it's like, it's like well-worn paths in the mind, right? There's just tracks that we tend to keep on returning back to. Um, and sometimes those are long-term, sometimes they're short-term. If you hear an autistic kid asking the same question again and again, and it's just seemingly expecting the same answer, you know, it's because there's this track worn in their mind um, where they just keep on returning to that concern. But also because it's a lot, it takes a lot of convincing that things are really reliable. It takes more convincing. I'm I'm fairly convinced of this, and then we become more convinced. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So my final point, um, number six: other things that drop out of my awareness tend to stay dropped. Um, other things, as in they're not part of my currently active interests. Um, so if I can't see something, I'm liable to forget about it. Um, if I haven't actively set a reminder for some work task that I'm supposed to be doing, I'm prone to letting it drop. Um, this is where the overlap with ADHD 
and autism is most striking, I think. Because um, I definitely think that this is a pretty, it's a very common aspect of autistic experience, uh, but it's also a very big part of what people talk about with ADHD. So I'm heavily reliant on rely, on reminders, as many people who are autistic and, and or ADHD tend to be. Yes, I tend to be put off by reminders. Yes, I'm afraid I do too. It's, it's a really difficult situation. Yeah, yeah. This, this idea of demand avoidance, which is really quite powerful, I think. Unfortunately, I tend to avoid even my own demands. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for going through that article. That was really, really helpful. So, Diane, if I can just go back to you then. So you, I'm right in thinking that you actually developed the theory of monotropism. Um, I wonder if you could just tell me how, how that came about. And again, just to, to summarise, if you were to summarise what that what monotropism is in, in a paragraph or two, how would you introduce it as a theory? Well, I would say that it needs to be understood in the, in the context of considering minds to be dynamic systems with interests and concerns. Um, and, you know, all concerns are interests, but luckily not all interests are concerned. All desires are interests, but not, luckily not all. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's the general picture, and I'd written a PhD about relevance, in which that model of mind emerged as the best way that I could see of encapsulating the idea of relevance, was that it was about making a difference to interests, and that therefore you had to put interests in the centre of your explanatory framework. Um, and then I, I in in 1991, I think it was, or it might have been 1990. Um, a friend was holding Uta Frith's book, Autism, the Enigma, and I said, oh, I've been, I've been um, reading about autism. Can I, could I borrow that? And they said, yeah, sure. So I read this book and I thought, oh, I see what's going on. I know this is a bit cheeky, but that is what I thought. I, thought, I see what's going on. There's, um, the, the energy is going to the leading interest and everything else is just falling away. So... yeah. And that insight has continued to help understand autism, but also help understand the bigger picture of how interests operate. Yeah. So how, how has monotropism been received then in, in, in the wider community since you developed it? Right. Good, good question. Well, when I first talked about it, which was at a conference in Durham, um, a small conference, um, uh, that it made quite a big splash. That was yeah. in 1992, and then it kind of evaporated. And and I think the reason why it was hard to make have an impact with the idea was partly that I was quite marginal. I didn't have an academic post. I wasn't a a paid researcher at that time. But more, nothing to do with me personally, but to do with the fact that it's a very different way of thinking about minds. It's a way that fits with a kind of Buddhist view of all living things being dynamic systems with with desires and uh, and so on. Um, so it it fell on stony ground. That's really people were were being very Cartesian and very mind body difference and things like that back in the eighties. So the timing of it. Was, early 90s is when I was offering this about autism. But generally, the the model that I was proposing um, was not 
uh, in sync with current thinking back then. Actually, it's very much in sync with current thinking now. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we have, you know, many theories of autism, like theory of mind or weak central coherence or empathizing, systemizing, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess the one thing about monotropism, it actually acknowledges sensory differences, um, which many of the other th- uh, theories fail to do so. That is very important, but it's also, it's an objective description and it's not, you know, it, it's not framed as negative. Yes. It's not pejorative. It's just saying, look, there's a difference. Yes. And it's an interesting difference, which has a lot of consequences. Mm-hmm. And some of those consequences are beneficial, both for autistic people and for those around them. Exactly. Others are very difficult to deal with. And also, I guess it's an aut- autistic-led theory as well. So um, it's drawn at least in part from internal observations and autistic perspectives. Yes, in, yes, indeed. And, and uh, that has been, I think, quite an important part of it. Um, it's been quite an important part of why it hasn't been recognised by some and it has been recognised by others. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's worth saying that, that it has always been greeted by quite a lot of people saying, oh, well, that makes sense now. Yeah. Finally, yeah. someone's described autism in a way that is actually coherent and yeah. covers all of the aspects of it rather than just focusing on one particular area. So, so is the theory, would you say, specific to autism, then? Um, de- definitely not. It's really a, a theory of, of human human nature as a subset of nature. Right. Um, in, a, in a very general way. So it, it's not, in fact, I, I don't really like describing it as a theory because it's really just a system of describing what goes on for humans, which actually everybody takes for granted in their normal discourse. And the word interest is used to explain things and explain actions and explain questions and you know why 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 do people care about this? It's absolutely pervasive, but it's a little bit like oxygen before oxygen was recognised. Mm, it's it's a theorisation of that everyday of an everyday thing idea. Yeah, yeah. A, a very everyday idea. And, and and again, forgive me if I don't know uh, if this is a naive question, but I guess some of the other theories, like theory of mind, that there are several tests that say Simon Baron Cohen have carried out to kind of prove that the you know the the theory exists. And I wondered, I know you just said monotropism isn't a theory as such, but is there any sort of evidence to to kind of back up the thinking? Well, can I just say that the the evidence for issues with theory of mind is very warped by the way it's interpreted. Um, and that uh, for a long time they weren't really factoring in whether people understood things that they were being tested. Yeah. You know, so around language and stuff like that. But what I what I think what I've fairly recently concluded is is really going on with what they identify as not happening is not negotiating for position. Right. There is a stream of concern that most people have going all the time, which affects all their thinking, which is, am I in or am I out? Am I up or am I down? Now, this may sound terribly cynical, but you know, we see it in primate, in all primates. I definitely see it in my dog as well. And so I think that you know, what is grandly described as theory of mind, uh, or another aspect of it is called empathy, um, is about tuning in in order to negotiate your position and always be at the ready 
to negotiate and redefend your position if you have to. And we and you know, doing that means maintaining an interest which is has no intrinsic relationship with what one is thinking about. It means retaining that non-intrinsically connected stream of thought, putting energy into it, pretty much day and night. So I think you know this when we're when we're labelled as as having not having this, it should be regarded as a tribute to our um, sense of fairness and. Uh, the point here, right, is that what's been interpreted as evidence for theory of mind, um, or rather for the theory of theory of mind, is capable of being interpreted in completely different ways, right? Um, so this happens, I think, quite a lot in psychology, um, because none of the things that are really interesting can be directly tested. So they come up with a series of measures which are supposed to measure something like theory of mind, but which might measure something completely different. Um, and that's, I guess, why Dine has been somewhat resistant to trying to produce a similar sort of test. Yeah, I guess it's not just with theory of mind, is it? I don't like executive dysfunction. There was the Tower of London test, the Wisconsin card sort test. So I guess some of the other theories, they they have kind of definitive kind of studies that are attached to them as such. And yeah, I guess that's where the, why I asked the question, really, yeah. It's worth saying that um, there has been some research on monotropism from a, an empirical perspective. Um, Becky Wood's research looking at the role of interests in school kids and that as a way of accessing education um, is essentially based on monotropism as a theory. Right. Julia Leatherland, in her PhD, also um, looked at the experiences of school kids and which ones she thought could be explained by different theories. And um, monotropism explains significantly more than any of the established theories. And non-autistic, absolutely. See where the child is. It's, a, and it's all about autism, but actually it's really good for relating to any child or any human, actually. How do you put monotropism into practice then? So I know that the, the, the thought is if we treat special interests as something to work with rather than trying to fix, essentially that, that should make for li make lives better for autistic and, and non-autistic people. Hi, there are so many things. Um, I wrote an article called Autism Tips for Teachers from an autistic teacher, uh, which talked about this a bit. Um, so for a start, understanding about the, the difficulty with multiple channels of processing um, should change the way that we teach and interact with people if we know that they're autistic. Um, it's important to not expect people to take in information if their attention is engaged elsewhere, uh, if there's too much background noise or background stimulation. So reducing the number of input streams is a really practical thing that is terribly helpful for a lot of autistic people um similarly with with filtering you know it, it's if you understand how much effort it takes to filter then that immediately tells you that you should be reducing the number of background stimuli that someone has to deal with um the fact that it takes time and effort to change tracks is just so important um, and it's, some, it's something that teachers often get wrong, I think. They, they expect people to just be able to 
change tracks just like that. Um, and that, it just doesn't work for a lot of kids. And of course, a lot of adults. And, and you will want to highlight as well the working with the kids' interests as being the way to really get them engaged. That's, that, I mean, that's central, isn't it? Um, understanding what kids are interested in um, makes it so much easier to engage with them. Hard to manage in a large class. Yeah, one of the many reasons why large classes tend to be very difficult for autistic kids and for teachers with autistic kids in their class, for that matter. But a, a big part of it is just, it's not directly practical, but it's about understanding where the barriers come from, right? Understanding, like, what it is that makes something like a classroom environment or a work environment or a home environment so difficult for so many autistic kids allows you to start pulling down the barriers and making things easier. And also recognising, really recognising personally and genuinely that there are issues going on which you can help with rather than just assuming that this is all stuff which can be kind of swept away. Um, part of the value also is in correcting the mistakes of other autism theories. So the theory of mind theory is just actively damaging. It, it, it leads people to assume that autistic people have not understood things which they may well have understood. Um, and to assume that any misunderstandings are the autistic person's fault. So actually getting your head around what's really going on in those misunderstandings has tremendous value. Yeah. And I think that monotropism is very helpful for correcting those mis misconceptions. That's the challenge we have, isn't it? There's still lots of misconceptions around, out there, aren't there, when it comes to autism? Um, there's an aspect which isn't exactly touched by monotropism, which is assuming goodwill. And that's one of the key things that, indirectly, given that a catastrophe in a, in a person who is monotropic is going to be more extreme than having precipitating those as rarely as possible is about is is more important. Yeah, yeah. So, what what do you think needs to be done then in society to kind of further our understanding of autism? What 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 do we need to do? Uh, well, I think we really need some very, very profound changes in the way society operates. <laughs> I, I agree with that, but I'm, I'm, I'm cautious of the sort of approach to these things which says, first, we overcome capitalism. We need to start from where we are now and change that. So, yes, we, we should be making many different many changes to society you know there should be universal basic income for everyone that would be especially helpful for autistic people um and many other disabled people and the, the the whole education system assuming that all schooling will happen between the ages of five and 18 is just is just completely the wrong way to do it for so many people it fails a very high proportion of kids. but in terms of shorter term goals um i think Wider understanding of neurodiversity is a really, really important place to start. So just people recognising that other people do not experience the world like they do. And they do not find all the same things easy that they do. They don't find all the same things difficult either. And that just makes it a huge difference. Um, so many of the barriers that autistic people face come from just a sort of default assumption that everyone thinks more or less the same.
even though everyone knows that's not actually true, right? It's widely understood that it's not true if people stop to think about it. And yet, every time it comes up in practice, um, you get, you get you know, teachers saying, come on, this should be easy. As you say, it's important, isn't it, that I guess both autistic and non-autistic people educate themselves so we can at least try and see each other's perspective and knowledge that we experience the world differently. Yeah, yeah. and crucially, um, non-autistic people should be getting educated by autistic people and other neurodivergent people. Um, far too much of the autism training that happens has no autistic input. And a lot of it is actively damaging. And a lot of it, even when it's not actively damaging, is just not very helpful. And I, my experience has been that when autistic people give autism and neurodiversity training, people really appreciate it. They're like, oh, right, yes. So, I mean, I think we should have a, a massive program of neurodiversity education designed and led by neurodivergent people. Not just about autism. It should be covering the whole gamut of neurodiversity. Some people say that actually the neurodiversity movement is dividing the community as in you know the autism spectrum is obviously a constellation if you like and and not everyone identifies with an autistic advocate that perhaps is on social media articulating what it's like to be them and 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 some autistic people on the other end of the scale might say well they don't speak for me. I just said the whole range of human idiosyncrasy which is vast. I mean, limitless. <laughs> and some people do say that. Um, of course, this is true with every social movement. You know, a lot of women don't think that feminists speak for them. Um, a, a lot of black people haven't particularly supported the way that some activists have approached the the, ra the struggle for racial equality. Um, so it's worth recognising that... Um, a lot of the resistance that the neurodiversity movement faces is of that sort. Um, it's it's just that, of course, it's a diverse population. And of course, not everybody is going to agree uh, with everything in it. And in fact, the neurodiversity movement has done more than anyone else to ensure that people who can't speak do have a voice. Um, you know, most of the push for uh, augmented and alternative communication has come from neurodiversity advocates. Um, and a, a lot of the pushback against neurodiversity has come from people who, who a misunderstood misunderstand the idea and the movement, um, and b are not neurodivergent themselves and seek to speak for people who are. And th th this manifests in in things like um, attitudes to ABA to applied behavioural analysis, as it's known, which is widely seen by autistic people as abusive honestly um and, and harmful and that includes non-speaking autistic people but you'll often get parents saying well you don't speak for my child yes and yeah i do right um whereas i'd prefer other non-speaking -aut non autistic people to speak for other non-speaking autistic people and typically they are um you know friendly to the neurodiversity paradigm and, and the neurodiversity movement. Just just changing the subject slightly, I wanted to finish off by talking about media representation of autism. Do you, do you think that's getting better? Much, much, yeah. Um, it's still often terrible. I, yeah. I didn't think much of atypical, for example. Um, yeah. but what about the, the A word? Did you see the A word on the BBC? 
Uh, I watched the first series. Right. And I have to say that I enjoyed quite a lot of it. Yeah. But I kept hoping that, like, it would kind of come together at the end of the series and there'd be, like, people yes. realising the mistakes they'd made. But no, no, they just had those mistakes massively reinforced. Um, so that was... That was a difficult watch in a lot of ways. Um, I was. Do you think we've still a big step on, on BBC One, a mainstream drama with a central character with autism? Is that, is that not a step in the right direction, though? Not necessarily, no. In some ways, yeah. 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 Um, but he's barely even a character. He's an yeah. autism stereotype. And, it's, and the story is not about him. It's about the difficulties he causes, largely. So that's pretty disappointing. Whereas Pablo... Um, the BBC RTE co-production yeah. is lovely and it's, you know, its central character is autistic. It's about him and his imaginary autistic friends. So it has multiple autistic people played by autistic actors, written mostly by autistic people, um, interacting and you know, it's, it's popular and it's delightful. It's really great fun. Um, and it's not on UK TV yet, but Everything Sucks has two two fairly central autistic characters um although it's not all about them played by autistic people um beautifully so that's great thank you so much for your time today guys it's great chatting to you both really, really interesting to hear about the, the the fascinating work that you guys do i just wanted to finish off with a, a question that i ask all my guests and um i'm, I'm going to start with you Dinah, first and i, I just wondered if you had the opportunity, what advice would you give your younger self? Don't be so cocky. <laughs> Very honest. How about you, Fergus? If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, I'd, I'd quite like to tell my teenage self to chill, but I don't think it would help. Um... <laughs> I could relate to that, definitely. Well, well, thanks again for speaking to us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, John. It's good talking to you.